Hello, welcome to the Coffee and Books podcast. We're going to have a special series. Our next series is going to cover Germany, a nation in its time, before, during, and after the nationalism, 1500 to 2000. This is written by the author Helmut Walser Smith, who is a professor at Vanderbilt University here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, so this book is primarily divided into five parts. And I wanted to talk about that today, kind of introduce you to the topic, and basically explain why I'm dividing it into five different parts. Mainly because it's a lot of information to digest. It's very informative. If you don't know anything at all about German history, this is gonna kind of like the crash course of German history, specifically from the year 1500 to present. Although, to kind of get into that, we'll have to go into what happened before and what happened after, of course. Now, what you mainly need to know is that this book came out in 2020. It comes highly recommended to me. I first discovered it at a Barnes and Nobles. And uh, these are the different sections that we're going to talk about the different parts. So this is today's part, part one, the nation before nationalism. Uh, then in part two, we have the uh, Copernican turn. The part three is the age of nationalism. Part four is the nationalistic age. And part five is after nationalism. So a lot there to unpack. So today we're going to be primarily talking about the first chapter, or rather the first section of the book, which is, of course, as I said, the nation before nationalism. And there's three chapters in that one specific part, seeing Germany for the first time, which we're going to talk about now. So in seeing Germany for the first time, we have to understand that Germany wasn't yet thought of as a country until the 1500s. Now, you might ask, well, what was Germany thought of before then? There's sort of a time period in ancient history when the Gauls and the Germanic tribes lived there. Primarily, that's where the word Germany comes from, but Germanic tribes were people, Romans, discovered living in these wooded areas. And they were kind of like how we consider indigenous people here in Native America or the Native American population. They're not any one group or particular group of people. They're bunch of different nations that were scattered over a specific territory in what we today think of as Germany. And so uh, that's kind of where the history starts. Uh, the characteristics of these people were often described as brave, have, having tremendous courage, strength. Um, obviously, they were seen in a certain way that the Romans viewed them as strong, um, powerful enemies. Basically, anyone the Romans fought against, they typically like to exaggerate their details to make themselves look better. And the Germans and the Gauls were no exception, which would eventually form France and, of course, like I said, parts of Germany. And like I said, uh, these tribes spoke different languages, not necessarily German, but eventually that was incorporated into sort of a loose sort of area, a region in which we think of as Germany today. Now, it was in that time period also that eventually we would go from that to Charlemagne. And I know that's a very big jump, but the idea is that there was an empire, the Holy Roman Empire, run by different kingdoms, that incorporated this area. And before this sort of time period existed, um, it's hard to imagine that kings and different rulers actually counted who lived in their territories and regions. Um, you know, things like censuses would develop later, but the idea behind it is that there was sort of a loose kingdom that did exist in this area the Holy Roman Empire, which, to be quite frank, I don't know a whole lot about. Um, so, like I said, I know Charlemagne was in charge of this region, and there was sort of a loose, like I said, confederation 
of a kingdom that existed in what is, again, present-day Germany. Um, but it is typically seen, according to this author, around the year 1500, when Germany really started to take its shape. You see, in other regions of the world, like Italy, you have different sort of nation-states. Uh, you, know, you know, if you go back far enough, you have examples such as Athens, Sparta, as a good example of what a nation-state is, but it's more like a city-state that kind of controls everything in the empire. Um, Italy had that with Venice and Florence and Rome, um, and then eventually Germany would have that as well. But what's highly different and irregular from Germany compared to the rest of the world is that while the rest of the world had booming populations in major cities, such as London and Paris having over 500,000 people, there was no German city that was over 50,000, 60,000. In fact, many of these uh, smaller cities or cities that we would eventually think of as bigger in Germany, such as Berlin, um, for example, were decimated by and destroyed over time by different various plagues, diseases, and wars, uh, which is all encompassed in this book. But to summarize, when Germany sort of started, and, and the idea of its nation first forming as an, an identity or a group of people as one nation, uh, Germany had many different sorts of towns that spoke different languages that also were not unified. Uh, you had different regions that were trying to become different kingdoms, places such as Austria were trying to form its own country, which would eventually succeed. And then you, of course, had other nations that existed, um, you know, that were more historical, such as worms. Um, and, of course, without even getting into the nitty-gritty details yet, we have to understand that there was a multi-religious ethnic groups of people living in the country. Uh, there were different Jewish groups. There were different uh, Calvinists, uh, Protestant Reformation eventually would happen during this time period, and of course you have the Catholics. So there is a not only different types of towns and cities that are competing against one another, but you also have different religions, which makes things very complicated. And of course, it's considered to be the medieval ages, you know, when it's first starting in the 1500s. Um, of course, that would eventually go to the Enlightenment later, but right now, for all intents and purposes, the very, very beginning or the beginning of where Germany sort of gets its identity comes from a couple major factors. One, map making. Although seemingly not that big of a deal at the time, uh, you know, it was a very big deal that uh, countries started mapping themselves. And, uh, you know, this was seen as very important, of course, because of the discovery of the Americas. But more importantly, places like Germany were start, sort of the home or one of the first and earliest places where map making was allowed. So you have places and regions from Italy to Amsterdam, the Low Countries, that often uh, made atlases, globes, and other such things that would help determine the um, idea of eventually what the world would look like. Germany was often seen as, as the center of Europe, and therefore the center of the world. Although, as we know from later references, this is highly incorrect. But at the time, when it was first coming into existence, Germany often thought of itself as important, and therefore different atlases and different types of uh, religious materials and different types of printing presses had a tremendous effect on unifying people across the entire region. Uh, like I said, early on, it was map-making that eventually would help people such as pilgrims travel to and from the region, and it would help you identify what towns and regions to look for. 
that were considered safe. Um, so this early map making was meant to be widely accessible, but mainly it was used so that people could pilgrimage down into, of course, Italy and eventually into the Holy Lands. But the idea was is that the first map making of what Germany would be and eventually where its borders would be defined as were to help pilgrims. And so that's just sort of the start. But eventually, we're going to go now into chapter 2, Germany as if it's a mirror. So Germany, if it's, a, if it's a mirror, the idea behind it is that now that the borders have sort of been established and there's this great thinking that's occurring, um, Germany itself is starting to reflect on the beautifulness of its country. Uh, there's different poets and authors and people talking about what Germany is. Um, these are the first poems to come out to describe how Germany exists and what it is exactly to the people who may not know it. Um, and it's crazy in our time to think of it as like, well, Germany has existed. But uh, back then, of course, in the 1500s, and particularly during this time period, this was a sort of time of or way of authors and poets to introduce what Germany would be and what it would become eventually. The idea of a unified German people would not necessarily exist until the 1800s. So the idea that there was different kingdoms such as uh, Bohemia, Prussia, uh, you know, the Bavarians, uh, these were all different competing powers. But at this time, like I said, it was poetry and eventually language that would unify its people. Uh, as German became sort of more widespoken, uh, people were moving and integrating around for different reasons, it would eventually lead to some more background and some more strength and, again, more of a unification. So why did people move around? Well, a lot of factors. One, uh, lack of food and resources. Um, as easy as that sounds as an explanation, it's very true. Um, the 1500s, you know, was not a good time necessarily to be in Germany. And it was not necessarily much better in the 1600s either. But the idea is that early on in German history, in particular the history of Germany, um, there were different conflicts that occurred. Um, eventually this would be seen as the Thirty Years' War, but the idea behind it is that at the time, things such as the bubonic plague, uh, the Black Death, and other such things that were affecting Europe eventually would lead to people leaving and moving and integrating into society. Uh, for instance, Jewish people were often blamed for the problems and were often kicked out of towns. Nearly every town in Germany kicked out Jewish people at one point or another, according to this book. Um, also, um, in, there was the factors to consider that people had many disagreements, and you had people such as Martin Luther uh, forming the Protestant Reformation, which very much differed from the Catholic Church. Obviously, the Pope being a big standpoint in Christianity. Um, and then, of course, also with all this going on, you also have the idea of climate change occurring. The idea that the earth is cooling off and that farms are not as bountiful as they once were in warmer weather. As a result of this, there was less food to go around and there was therefore more conflicts amongst people. All this led to, again, people migrating from one part of Germany to another, which again spread the language, spread the culture, uh, and eventually would unify it um, over time. Okay, lastly, now we're going to get into chapter 3, which I said chapter 3 is very important because now we're going to finally talk about what in the world is going on during the 1600s and 
That chapter is called The Tears of the Stoics. This is the most important part of the later part of the first um, chapter series that we're doing. And why is this important? Well, uh, Germany, like I said, had recently had its divisions among its religions and peoples. As I said, many Jewish people were already feeling the effects of this, but eventually it would lead to war between the Catholics and the Protestants and the Calvinists. Um, basically, there were different kingdoms, and it was more of seen as a global war, not just a civil war. But really, Germany was the ultimate sufferer of the result of all this, because Germany was where the conflict started. So on one hand, you had countries such as Sweden, who had a very Protestant a different type of thinking. And then you had, on the other side, you had the Catholics, which came from the Habsburgs, you know, and the Bourbons, and different groups of people, such as uh, the French and the Spanish. Uh, all these fought a sort of quasi-global war in Germany. And as a result of this, the population was greatly reduced. Um, many people suffered, and again, the war lasted over 30 years, hence the name, the Thirty Years' War. Uh, again, there's different reasons why this happened, but the primarily main factor of what this caused, all of this, was that Germany was not unified under one religion, and as a result of this, there was conflict and strife on how people viewed the empire. For instance, if the Catholics were in charge, which they were for the first part of the um, empire under Maximilian, eventually the people who were Protestant and Calvinist would have differing opinions of you know, the Catholic Church and therefore would not want to support the emperor. And as a result of this, again, there was much internal strife and conflict, neighbor versus neighbor. Um, and unfortunately, like I said, this led to the population being greatly reduced. As I already mentioned, all this is keeping the entire populations of Germany down to a lower level than the rest of Europe at this time. Um, in fact, it is seen that in order to make up for the lack of uh, people, people in those uh, decimated regions, the most devastated regions, had to have six or seven kids in order to increase the population just because so many died of starvation and childbirth and the population was being reduced by war. And all this was going on at once while a humanist movement was happening. And again, the idea behind it was many anti-war books came out, many people were against the wars that were happening, that were devastating everything. And again, Germany was in its infancy and it's finding its own identity. And as a result of all this, we have eventually a peace that would secure between both groups of people, both religions, and Germany would eventually unify itself, but not after nearly tearing itself apart after so many years. And that is the end of part one. So, hopefully you enjoyed learning about the history of Germany and its early map making, and hopefully you learned a thing or two, mainly about the different inter-religious inter conflicts that occurred. Maybe you learned a thing or two about the history of Germany itself. Uh, we'll find out eventually how, um, in the next part series, how things like um, the way we view the Earth changed, and we'll find out eventually how the map making continued to improve and how uh, how printing improved and how education improved and how that would eventually lead to the second revolution in part two. All right. So again, my name is Scott and you're listening to the Coffee and Books podcast. Um, so far, I'm going to give this book a three out of five. Um, three, because this is a very in-depth, detailed analysis of Germany. I love it. Again, 
something that I wanted to learn about. That's why I rented the book. Again, not 100% accessible to the everyday public. Um, the language is a little above me even and what they use, so I have to constantly be using a dictionary to look up words and definitions. But if you're definitely interested in German history, this is definitely a must-read. In particular, I am learning all about the different types of towns across Germany. This makes me excited, especially if I was actually going to Germany. I would probably appreciate this more. Um, I've been to Germany before. I would like to go back, but I've only seen a few places. And this book describes many, many, many places and locations. So maybe one day, we'll see. Hopefully, I'll get that chance. But anyway, thank you for listening to the Coffee and Books podcast please feel free to email me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N, 16 at yahoo.com. Thank you again for listening, and don't forget to review and share this podcast with a friend if you enjoyed today's episode.